Listen to Natty News. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Natty News, the nattiest news show in the world. My name is Adam Danani, and I'm joined once again with my co-host, Pat National. Woo! Pat, how are you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good, man. I'm, I'm uh, fresh off Nationals. That happened uh, last Saturday. So, yeah, still kind of basking it in and being back to regular life. Dude, that's awesome. And congratulations again for another fantastic national performance. I, I still think it's so cool that um, you're a national competitor. Like, it still it takes me back to when we were in the weight rooms back in high school and how far you've come. And it's really great. Like, you're really living up to your full potential when it comes to this sport. Yeah, it's really funny that I really just took this one thing I like to do in high school and now it's the only thing I do you know my my work is teaching people how to lift weights my sport is lifting weights so we're just gonna we're just gonna ride this one skill I mean dude we literally have like 50 episodes talking about the benefits of picking up something heavy and putting it down like it's crazy about how like something so simple really can change your life for so many ways and does provide so many valuable good things to it um but yeah, dude, uh, do you want to actually maybe kick it off and talk a little bit about the Nationals, talk about the training, talk about the results, how you felt about it? Yeah, I absolutely can. It was, uh, you know, it was a bit of a mixed bag. We'd start with the results. I went three for six. I made two snatches. I did 115 and 119 kilos. And then, uh, and then I only made one clean and jerk at 137. And... Uh, so 256 kilo total got me 11th place and uh you know so you know I didn't get last which is okay but um I think I could have done a lot better and there were a couple reasons that led up to it which I think is always interesting uh the first of which is that we had a couple stressful days the couple days before comp which resulted in me probably getting eight hours of sleep in two days uh before competing and um, so on the day of comp, uh, felt pretty rough, but, um, some things that I'm proud of is that, you know, in my first competition this season, uh, I missed 115 kilo snatch and I've never actually made 115 kilo snatch in a live competition. So for me to make that my first attempt was really cool. And then to make a 119 is like a five kilogram, uh, competition PR which was great. Um, but then we got into clean and jerks and it just got, got kind of ugly there. Um, essentially, I was one of the last people to snatch, but one of the first people to clean and jerk because I just cannot jerk for my life. And I went out and missed my first attempt. Um, and then the way it goes in weightlifting when you miss your first attempt is that you get exactly two minutes in the clock to do your second attempt, which is not a good situation. It's not a lot of time to rest, and it's pretty stressful. So I go back there, you know, I, I, I get myself hyped up, and I, I clean it. looks easy as always, and I do the jerk, and it looks even worse, and I end up with my ass in the ground. Um, so then what happens is that uh, I have to take my third attempt on a two-minute clock. So this is like some EMOM, every minute of the minute stuff, and... You know, I'm just looking at Coach Jeremy, and he looks like <laughs> he looks like he's about to pass out from me giving him a heart attack. But I think one of the highlights from the competition was coming out for the third attempt, and 
uh, you know, the whole crowd, like we had, you know, lifters from across the country and people watching. We had the whole crowd just yelling for me. Every single person there. Uh, and that really helped get my energy up and, and uh, I can still kind of like relive that feeling. So on the third attempt, I made a clean and jerk which was such a relief because I was so scared I was going to get disqualified. So, yeah, all in all, it's, you know, it wasn't my best performance, but I'm kind of pretty happy with uh, doing the best I could and having some, kind of making some mental gains, right, by missing something twice and then coming back and making it. Yeah. And I mean, not only that, but that's a cool experience to have, like, the whole gymnasium kind of, like, cheering you on and going with you. It's kind of like a real rocky moment, even though you didn't win the gold. I think kind of having an experiencing something like that is pretty cool yeah i you know i should have said some corny shit like i didn't hear no bell or anything (laughs) (laughs) right right, fall on your ass and get back up (laughs) or like just like turn to your coach before you lift the bar and saying it's saying something like if i die i die and just like go through it but i don't know that would actually maybe make it a little lamer (laughs) oh man yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a lot of fun though. You know, I I really kind of like how the community gets together. Like, I'm pretty sure like there's no way I knew all these people that were there. So for like basically complete strangers uh, to kind of like want to cheer for someone that they know kind of needs it at that moment is just like really great. It's like a really great wholesome thing, you know. Well, I mean, you might remember in one of your earlier meets when I came by to watch, um, there was that guy who he was saying that if he got this lift, his dad would buy him a Lamborghini. And people were into that. People were like, come on, let's go get this lift, get that Lamborghini. Um, unfortunately, he did not make it. And um, his dad never got him the Lamborghini. It's, it's a truly sad tale. Man, yeah, that's, that's hilarious. You know, but on that topic, I think, if I'm being really honest, weightlifting can be weightlifting competitions can be really slow and not always that interesting. I think some of the what makes it fun sometimes is the story, right? If you know someone's either about to attempt a national record or have to make this lift to win, or they're about to get disqualified, um, you know, those are the moments where it's like it's not interesting because of the weight on the bar. It's interesting because of the moment and what it represents and. You know, those kind of moments are pretty cool to watch. Dude, completely. I mean, I think that's the whole fun of watching spurts. Like, I think every spurt, most people don't really care that much about the actual technical aspect as much as, like, kind of the plots, the games. Like, ooh, these players, like, they've had so much drama before and are bringing it to the curtain. And it becomes this whole grand narrative. It's kind of like our modern-day legends and myths and stuff. So I completely agree with you. I think a good story is what makes it so entertaining. Like, I'm sure watching a clip of that, uh, of your competition like that's entertaining because this is great story and narrative of you failing and then coming up and having Avon backing you and getting this amazing lift yeah yeah absolutely man like I don't I know a lot of traditionalists in weightlifting really like the sport to be all quiet and beautiful and stoic but I I get most interested with the lifters who come out and uh they do some yelling they hype themselves up they get the crowd into it and uh and just look like they're having a good time. Like that's what really gets me interested. And there was a there was one coach who was there. I don't really know who he was. He was from Ontario, but he had, he was a a cowboy hat on, right? <laughs> While coaching, uh, and he got so into it. Like at one point, when his his lifter 
uh, made a lift. He started screaming and he he started uh, jumping and just he was like 35 inches in the air. Like this guy had some hops. Like he was just jumping up and down, all excited. And I'm just into it. I don't know who this person or their coach is, but that's what I like to see. You know, I just the the energy and the to see someone having a good time is just it's more important than the weight of the bar sometimes. Yeah, man, no, completely. And I mean, I think that's kind of what you need to kind of bring it more mainstream. I mean, weightlifting, powerlifting, a lot of these barbell spurts are getting more popular, but I think you need that entertainment factor to get people to really start watching it to grow. So hopefully you get a little more of that. Yeah, on, honestly, and, and we should we should definitely uh, look to eventually get an interview with some. I had some lifters in mind that I saw that uh, definitely embody that really well. So yeah, that's... Uh, it's, it was a great time being at Nationals. Only if they all wear a cowboy hat. <laughs> I need to find this guy, hey? we we got to talk to this cowboy guy. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of cowboys, Pat, um, I'm not sure if you can actually hear it in my voice, but I'm currently wearing a cowboy hat right now with my cowboy boots, and my hearse is in the back um, neighing right now, as they do, since I know so much about um, hearses and you might be asking yourself Anwar why why have you had this whole change you're just some typical city slicker well not for long since I've moved to good old Austin Texas oh yeah we're now an international show yeah so um some of the listeners might know I recently started a new job and um moved over to Austin and it's been a fantastic city but man I have to say, if we had to come up with like the top 10 biggest gains killers, dude, I think moving's up there. Moving just, it wrecks you. Like, it shocks me about when you just drive, how tired you can be from just sitting in a car and driving from point A to point B. Um, oh, absolutely. But did, you, didn't, you didn't have to drive up there, did you at all? I, I um, actually picked up the car in Oklahoma um, from a friend of ours, um, friend of the show, oh, yeah, Andy. Yeah. So um, I got a car from Oklahoma, and so I had to drive to Austin, and that was like an eight-hour drive. And I actually drove drove through a thunderstorm, which was crazy. Like, it was like it would be pitch black, and then boom, you'd see, like, lightning, and everything would light up again, and it would be pitch black again. It was was an experience. Oh, my goodness, man. That's a – let me tell you, man. I I, (laughs) – my my partner Jess and I drove up to Kelowna, and that was like four and a half hours, and it felt – like when when I got out of the car, my I could not feel my legs. So eight hours, goodness, that is incredible. Yeah, um, I was actually listening to an audio book, um, called Circe. Um, it's about the the Greek goddess Circe, this, um, daughter of Helios, and it was a fantastic book. Like highly recommended. Uh, especially, I mean. Um, I really enjoy Greek mythology, and this book was amazing. So it kept me really interested for the whole eight hours. So nice, um, nice. It, it definitely flew by. But yeah, no, man, um, moving has this, it kind of has put my gains a bit on hold. Um, I've been training out of this apartment gym, and the dumbbells go up to only 50. So I, I've been really working on those sets of 20 reps. <laughs> You can still do side raises, though, effectively. You got side raises. Dude, <laughs> that's true. I still got side raises and uh, dumbbell curls. I will be the ultimate gym bro when I'm done with this. Uh, but yeah, no, um, I'm hoping to probably, uh, as I settle down more and more, I probably will need to find a good gym. So if anyone listening knows any really good gyms in the Austin downtown area, please let me know. I'd love to check some out. 
Uh, but yeah, that's, I guess, the only thing been going on in my life. Uh, I mean, uh, besides that, you know, I, I know you work from home when you're in Vancouver. Like, what is the, what does the day-to-day look like in, in Austin? Is it you commuting by, by bus, by, by bike or anything? Well, I mean, like I mentioned before, I have my uh, my pony Cinnamon. Um, she gets me around most places, but um, no. So I I do commute. Um, right now we're doing the whole hybrid model thing, which you know it's not too bad. It, it's a, it's a little weird being back in an office. I gotta be honest with you. I, I mean, yeah. I guess you you've never worked in like I guess a typical corporate office, but is this something about it? It's something about it where it's like. It really blows my mind. Like, how did I used to do this for 40 hours a week? <laughs> yeah, and, and it's not necessarily always, from what I've heard from you anyways, it's not necessarily always efficient in an office either. Like, there's a lot of benefits to, like, a hybrid or a home model. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, work has kind of evolved a bit where, you know, this, this period where it's kind of slow and then this period where it's very busy. And I think kind of being at home gives a lot of flexibility in that, where it's like, you know, for maybe like 12 to 2, I have nothing going on, so I might go work out. But then some stuff might be happening, so I might be staying a little, I might be working a little later. But because I'm home, it's a little easier to adjust based off that. When you're in like an office and stuff, and it's like 8 p.m., and you're like, man, I'm hungry. Uh, like, you don't want to get takeout all the time. That just like wrecks your body. So at least when you're home and you're working till 8, you can go get some good snacks. You can eat some food at home. Like, yeah. Um, but we'll see. I mean, that's another thing. I, I, if again, if we were to make a list of the top ten game killers, I think going having an office job is probably up there too. <laughs> I totally agree. And like, I my work tends to be kind of hybrid too. And I, I really enjoy those days where I get to be at home, where you know you can hop off a call of a thirty minute break and you can make lunch, and you actually save money that way too, right? You make lunch, you can rest whereas when you're in the office you're kind of like i don't know what to do dude and also like i think um i don't i kind of go through rotations where i count macros and don't count macros but i always cook food that's very macro friendly so and like when you go out and eat and stuff like i do feel like my body feels different when i start start like eating out more like you know you really do feel lethargic and stuff when you start eating out more than just eating your own meals Especially if you do eat like a lot of like vegetables and pretty decently healthy overall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, not to say I'm a good cook because I'm not, but when when I cook on my own, at least I know exactly portion of what's going in. And I I feel like when you cook by yourself, like at least for me and you, it's infinitely a lot harder to make a healthy meal because you can see what you're preparing. So you're unlikely to dump in like 45 tablespoons of sugar or dump in like a cup of oil like you'll typically be more reasonable with the portions dude complete exactly it's like when you actually put in like the oil the cheese or you know some of the extra heavy calorie stuff like when you can physically see it you're like yeah maybe i should cut down a bit on this (laughs) or like yeah sugar too um you know actually uh i don't know how much you cook with flour um i i often use flour as a thickener for like sauces and stuff and like a roux Um, and I recently discovered barley flour and I'll do barley, dude, I'm telling you, this is going to be the next super thing that you see influencers keep on promoting. It's very high in protein. It's very high in fiber and you can use it replaced with flour in a lot of use cases. 
and it's fantastic dude like we're talking about like a scoop of like barley is like 18 grams of protein and 15 oh. grams of fiber it's incredible it's yeah i mean of course it's not a complete protein um but like again you can if you mix it with some other vegetables like some mushrooms some peas carrots stuff like that you can get a complete protein from it so um, and I mean, again, like those are all delicious vegetables that you should add in. Um, so I definitely think like we're going to see a barley bro revolution. And that's, you know, I didn't think we we're going to get into uh, cooking tips, but I think we should make this a thing now. <laughs> Super interested, <laughs> personally. You know, um, maybe I'll make like a little like Instagram video or something about like using barley. But dude, no, I, I recently discovered that and I, it really has changed a lot of how I do my cooking and has kind of replaced the use of flour for most of my cooking. Because flour is more or less like nutritionless. Like it's great, right? As a thickener, but it really doesn't add much to it. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, no one's going to be like saying that like, oh, cut out all flour, that's killing your body. But it is kind of like, empty it doesn't really have much nutrition it doesn't really have any fiber it's just kind of pure carbs which i mean again isn't awful for you but at the same time it's like why would you want that when there's actually a better alternative that does almost the exact same thing and gives the same similar end product and i'm gonna have to that barley flour and worse cooking tips dude i'm telling you man i'm telling barley is gonna be a big deal in the fitness industry like how everyone got obsessed with um my mind's going blank, but I know there's been like trends of superfoods and stuff. Oh, like beets and chickpeas and granted, chickpeas are great. Beets are also great. So I'm probably not listing the right fads. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um, but anyways, I think enough about my new favorite grain. Um, but yeah, Pat, I think today we actually had a really interesting topic to go over and something i um like a lot of topics know very little about but i'm very interested to learn more about so do you want to kick it off yeah so um you know i am by no means an expert but uh you know the listeners know i am in physio school and my first clinical placement i elected to uh, work with dr alex scott in his attendant lab uh, over by the uh Vancouver General Hospital, and he is one of the world-renowned experts on all things tendon. And for the last five weeks, we've basically been testing a way to measure ankle strength and to prescribe ankle isometric exercise after uh, Achilles tendinopathy. Um, and you know that that most of that is just like piloting data and whatnot, which isn't too interesting, but. Along the way, there was a lot of reading I got to do, and I, I got to pick a lot of expert brains on uh, clinical management of uh, tendon or tendinopathy, uh, myths about uh, rehabbing from tendon issues, and sort of a, a framework to uh, tendon rehab that I really had not learned a lot about uh, in school because it really isn't that emphasized. We had like a, maybe two lectures about that topic, and I know a lot of people deal with this uh, chronic problem yeah man i mean i think like a lot of lifters who have lifted for a few years have probably faced some type of tendon pain in their career and like it's one of those things where you never really know what to do like obviously maybe rest and maybe just like go a little easier for a couple days but it really is kind of a mystery and even doing my own research when i would face those things you never get a super clear answer 
Yeah, so yeah, exactly. And um, basically, most of the uh, education I got was from this one uh, paper that Dr. Scott sent me to read. It was like 130 pages, but it's it was actually funded by the soccer team FC Barcelona. Uh, and, you know, that that's the most important thing in clinical research to have like funding and for a team like Barcelona, they had unlimited funding, more or less. And it really laid out a clear framework what you should do, what you shouldn't do, and what some myths are. So that's what I hope to kind of lay out uh, right now. Dude, that is so cool. I mean, as well, like when you have a team like Barcelona, which is probably one of the most famous sports teams out there, funding something like this, like, you know, then this is probably some pretty good science. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, shall we get right. into it? Dude, lay it on me. I am, I am very interested to hear what the results say. Yeah, so let's get into it. So, you know, um, you know, thus far, and, and traditionally what's used in a lot of clinics is that uh, people do two types of exercise, uh, one of which is called isometric training uh, when they have tendinopathy, which is like, it, it's uh, isometric training is muscle contractions that don't involve movement, right? So an easy example is a, a wall sit. Another example might be you sitting down and then just pushing your calf against the wall to generate a calf contraction, but nothing's moving. Um, the second one that's most common is eccentric training, uh, which is uh, one of the most famous protocols called like the heel drop protocol, where you essentially do a calf raise on a block and you lower and you really focus on slow, heavy lowering. Um, and then the third thing that's done is like manual therapies, right, which is what a lot of people think is what physios uh, focus on, which is not necessarily true, but like things like uh, tendon massage and what you call like deep friction massage or or whatnot. So what this paper basically outlined is that none of these things are enough in isolation. Eccentric trainings are not enough in isolation. Manual therapies are not enough in isolation, and isometrics are not enough in isolation. Uh, meaning that we have to go through a uh, and this is our favorite word on Natty News. We have to go through a progressive overload approach to this tendon rehab process, uh, and uh, in order to reach full recovery. So I'll kind of go into these uh, four phases now. So essentially, dude, before you go into the four phases, yeah. um, I, I just want to make a comment that, dude, wasn't Milo the greatest, smartest, um, like? physical therapist of like all time like this guy real realized all of this back in ancient greece dude milo man people people need to know his name yeah you know like people get honorary degrees they gotta they gotta give milo like an honorary like pt phd kind of degree for for what he did <laughs> dude actually but though sorry just want to give some respect to milo the greatest um physical trainer of all time uh but please continue yeah, there's there's uh there's never any need to apologize about a Milo shout out every single day. <laughs> here we go with the tendon rehab. Uh, essentially four in progressive overload phases. Now keep in mind the context of this is that we are talking about someone who has like a, a pretty acute flare up. Uh, meaning that let's say it's Achilles tendinopathy. Like it's so painful that when you get up in the morning, first step really hurts. Or even going to sleep certain positions really hurt you. So this isn't, you don't have to go through all four phases if you're just feeling a little bit of a nag in there. Um, but the first phase is to do uh, isometric training, right? So let's say it's our calf. It's going to be uh, just pushing against a rigid 
uh, object. It's going to be light range of motion work. But the part that was really fascinating about phase one that they listed was that the volume of it. They're listing 150 reps every single day. An example exercise was just regular calf raises. And I don't know about you, Anwar, but when I had tendinopathy, I was not getting prescribed to do 150 reps. So I think the first point that we have to understand here is you have to seriously load these things up when we have this issue. It's interesting. Is it's kind of like the idea of doing these high reps where then like your muscle is so exhausted that you start then working on the tendon for like the support. The the tendon is always worked on uh, every time you kind of do loading. I think the idea is that uh, tendons are a bit more resistant to uh, do rehabbing. There's a lot of theories on like how like what exercise actually does the tendon. A lot of the theory is that. When you rupture or you when you injure part of the tendon, that part doesn't actually recover very well. Your healthy tissues get healthier and bigger to make up for it. But there's a lot of the theories that it just takes a lot more volume uh, in order to make it recover the way you, that you need it to. Okay, now that makes sense. Yeah, so you know, you're meant to do that isometrics, and then the next phase is to do heavy slow resistance strength exercises so um this is kind of phase two after your flare up your pain's a little bit further down we're talking training at minimum 70 percent of one rep max training which is really exciting right it's i think for someone going through rehab it's really easy to get depressed when you're just doing super low level exercises but it really prescribes here uh three times a week at least getting up above that 70 percent threshold um and what I really like about this paper is that um, they also emphasize strengthening above and below the joint too. So if you have patellar or knee tendinopathy, you know, your rehab plan shouldn't just consist of knee exercise. You got to make sure you work the hip and the calf too. And I think that's a concept that both of us can agree with. Just, you know, rehab does not mean just fixing that one injury. You have to strengthen up like the whole complex, right? Especially when in the context of the people who wrote this paper, you want to return to sport, which, which a lot of us do. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think like, I mean, it's also kind of like, I think a lot of people kind of half-assed a rehab part two and just try to like wait for it to get better. Yeah, man, I, I, that's a huge part. And that's part of what we were developing in our lab was a, a kind of like a home instrument to measure force outputs. Uh, like to be able to have the patient quantitatively see it. But because I think a lot of people, when they think they're working at 70%, they're really maybe working at 40%, right? And then they go and work for weeks and they don't understand why they're not getting the results. That, that's usually the hardest part, right? Like it's easy to prescribe a percentage, but how do you really make sure that people are working that hard? Yeah, no, completely. Yeah. Then part three so you know you do the you've been injured you did three to four weeks of isometrics you did maybe four to eight weeks of this heavy slow resistance that was the fun part uh want to get back to speed training i really loved how this paper uh, really broke that stereotypes of physios just doing like band exercises we're talking now into speeding explosive training two to three times a week once uh, the pain and discomfort is cooled down and about is that um 
you know, to bring back a little bit of physics, the the type of forces that pro provide the highest tensile load to a tendon are any movements that use the tendon as a spring. And these are your explosive plyometric movements, right? Uh, you perhaps doing like a two-foot volleyball jump, jumping to dunk, doing uh, soccer cuts uh, for the upper body, right? Serving a tennis ball, throwing a ball really fast. Um, and I think the key point here is that, you know, the other problem with rehab, other than people not loading hard enough, is that they jump back into things too fast, right? And where you mentioned you used to play tennis and, and bench press, and you probably hurt your elbow a little bit. As soon as it hurts a little bit less, we jump right back in the next week of our training program, and that's where things get hurt again. So part of that key point here is to take some time, rebuild the base before you kind of start to spring that tendon again, because that is a big shock. And if you have a, imagine like a, a, a thick band, if you have a weak point, a weak ruptured point, then it's always more likely to rupture again at that point. Yeah, no, you're completely right about that. I think, yeah, I think one of the big things recovery too is patience. And like you're mentioning with tennis and bench pressing, it was kind of like you never really gave that patience on going through a proper recovery for it. And instead just jumped in and then, you know, you just keep on re-injuring. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so like, you know, that that was all, all super interesting. And, and I think the last phase here was just returning to regular training loads. Um, which, you know, I think... At that point, it's almost more conversations with like a strength and conditioning coach and the sport coach to organize them to come back to play once the physio has decided that they're uh, pretty close to action. So, you know, I, I just thought this was really interesting to have kind of a clear, uh, not that this has been like, this, there hasn't been enough to make this the clear-cut clinical guideline, but I really love that it's like a clear step-by-step -step program and that it really emphasized uh, a physiotherapy program that got the person fully back to the activity rather than just taking them out of pain, which I don't think is uh, the only outcome that matters. Yeah, that's true. Because at the end of the day, as you were mentioning before, it's about getting them back into the spirit or the function that they really um, value. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I really believe in that as a, as a future physio that uh, our job is not just to modify pain. Our job is to uh, make sure people are prepared to go back to the activity that they want to do and to, as much as possible, mitigate their chance of getting that injury again. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, sorry, um, I think you covered the four main steps now, right? Yeah, yeah, that is, that is it. The isometric, heavy, slow, it's basically like isometric, strength training, speed training, and then returning to sport. So now that all sounds like well and good. Is there kind of like a con to this method? Is there like anything that any gaps or things that people should be aware of if they're thinking like, okay, it's this simple, this first easy steps to get into it? Yeah, the, the, the problem with this is, you know, if we're talking about the timeline about this, it's a minimum of anywhere from 8 to 16 weeks before your probably very eager athlete is able to return to speed training. So we're talking a couple months before the person is returned to what they do, right? And it's really easy for someone to have pain reducing to just jump back into sport, right? Like it's, 
especially for sports that are time sensitive. Like for example, if the season in September and you hurt yourself in July, what are the chances that the person skips the season, right? They're, they're going to want to play. So what's good in this ideal model might not necessarily work in real practice all the time. So let's actually, let's, let's do a little case study. So Pat, let's go back to Anna with his little tennis elbow issue. So to kind of go through maybe the first stages, would maybe stage one doing the isometrics, would it be like maybe doing like a tricep pushdown and just doing like super high reps and super low um, range, I mean, sorry, super low weight, and then kind of maybe moving over to increasing the load and starting doing heavier resistance, and then eventually maybe doing like some like push, uh, some like um, clapping push-ups for like some speed work. And then maybe returning to like regular bench pressing after an uh, eight week period of this. Yeah, you know that that uh, that's that's more or less kind of the idea we'd want to go with, right? Um, and uh, you know, and I mean, for for like a tennis elbow, in addition to tricep pushdowns, you'd probably do like wrist extensions and whatnot to work that. But you totally have the idea uh, there. You know what I I would. Something I would think about doing, um, and you know, I can only test this once I really start working with patients one day, is to kind of introduce that bench pressing as soon as we can. Uh, you know, so we're not maxing out, but you know, once you've kind of done the asymmetrics and cooled the pain down, I would sort of think of introducing even just like empty bar work and whatnot. And I think part of that is like, you know, working on the rehab, but part of that is also keeping the patient happy, you know. Uh, knowing that, you know, we know that their goal is still in mind and to start to introduce that rather than, because I know athletes, when they have their sport completely taken away, it's something that's really hard to take. So that's the only modification I take. As each phase goes on, the early phase will have very little of the sport, very little of the bench press in this case. But as time goes on, there's more and more bench press. And then there's a little bit less time allocated to like the specific rehab stuff. That makes a lot of sense. So now we talked a lot about recovery. Can we use the same principles on also strengthening, like strengthening the joint so that we weren't even injured them in the first place? Strengthening the tendons? Sorry, the tendons, my mistakes. Yeah. 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 You know, it's, it seems that, uh, I kind of like this model is more or less the way, kind of the same way that you would strengthen up a tendon. Um, so, you know, things to keep in mind is that, to do both eccentric and isometric training to some extent but essentially bases are covered by doing heavy training uh which you know again for with our main cell with natty news doing good strength training will improve the strength of your tendons uh and if you're an athlete that's explosive it is important to uh work on those explosive exercises that work on uh you know, expressing that high tensile load to your tendon. And one thing to be really careful of, I think, is especially for most of us who are kind of weekend warrior types, when you've come off a long hiatus, the tendon uh, gets detrained a bit and it, its ability to handle, handle tensile load is lower. So I think it's just important to train year-round, do strength training year-round, do some explosive uh, springy work year-round so that you're tendons are always prepared to handle the load that they need to when they are doing their sport. 
That's a very good point, um, especially with like the weekend warrior type, which I am very much part of. I think one of the biggest common mistakes I make is when I take a break, example, like with this moving, I haven't been able to go to a normal commercial gym and get a normal workout in. And so like I always be like, okay, you know what? Um, I was able to bench like 225 um, before I moved. So let me go to the gym and throw on 225. And then I always tweak something. <laughs> yeah and it's kind of like what you <laughs> what you've been saying about that about like kind of understanding um that as you have these like gaps and stuff your body does kind of like regress for a bit uh, of course it bounces back quick but you have to keep that in mind exactly you know that's and i think that's the bit that's going to be the biggest takeaway from this talk here uh you know everyone listening like none of you are physios probably okay maybe some of you are but uh you know if you have this if you have a chronic tendinopathy problem see a good physical therapist the most important thing we can do for ourselves to be responsible is uh, when you've had a hiatus it's just not a smart thing to do to just jump in and do way too much and i do this to myself all the time right like i'm taking a week off from lifting this week and i'm probably gonna go and play tennis try to dunk a basketball or something next week and then i'm gonna come back and complain about why my knee hurts and the reason is actually so simple it's just You've taken a hiatus, your tendons have become detrained, they have lower to low tolerance, and then the weekend warrior culture just proposes that we go and do all this activity all at once, and that is exactly how you get mindful and careful of that. will go a long way for injury prevention. Dude, I love to hear this. Um, and again, it really kind of shows about how beneficial just regular proper progressive overload strength training can give so many benefits to your body because i mean i guess theoretically if you were very strict and followed um not an extreme progression and you were doing some good strength training you could probably avoid having any real damage um and like you're just your ligaments get stronger and stronger yeah i i just think you know if you do regular strength training and you're just at least somewhat aware of that load management aspect, uh, well, you'll greatly reduce your chance, right? And uh, one thing to add here is kind of that idea of periodizing. You know, uh, for example, most weekend warriors or high-level athletes have a competitive season or a time where they do their sport more, right? So if you're doing a lot of your sport, that's probably a good time to cut back on your other recreational physical activities and even a little bit on the lifting, right? But then... When you have an off season from your sport, then that's a great time to do some more strength training to increase your capacity. Um, you know, you kind of think of it as that, like you have a cup of water and you can only fill it with so many things. So if one thing is really going up, the other thing has to go down or you're going to overflow and we can take that overflow as an analogy for an injury. Well, Pat, um, I think... I definitely learned a lot, and I really think this is actually a really beneficial topic. Anything else you want to say before we close off? No, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I think that was. Uh, I hope I did the topic justice. You know, I have still a lot to learn, so hopefully there will be an update episode someday soon when I start to work with patients and just as I start to read and dive deeper into the literature. Well, if you ever need a guinea pig, I'm always open. Absolutely, man. 150 calf raises a day. That's uh, you're gonna have huge calves.
Dude, I actually need, I, I saw Noah's thing that I do feel like my calves are very small because all I do is I run. I don't do any direct calf training. And I actually feel like maybe I should start doing some because they are looking a little disproportional nowadays. Oh, man, let, let me tell you in my, this is a total side note, but my five-week placement, right, we're testing this new implement. Over the course of five weeks, I've done probably uh, 150 or like 200 reps of maximal calf contractions. I'm seeing my calves like striated for the first time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I might need to give that a shot. Well, anyways, thank you to all of our listeners. Um, if you enjoyed this, definitely share it with your friends. Um, give us a comment. Let us know what you think. And we hope to hear you from you guys. And have a great rest of your week. Natty news, natty out. news, natty news out.